Well, we are in Genesis 3. This is not an unfamiliar text for us. We have been here at different times and in different ways, at different seasons for different purposes, and frankly, we have approached it in a few different ways. But as we are now approaching this book of Genesis verse by verse, in an attempt to ground ourselves, to root ourselves in the early Scriptures, the first Scriptures, of course, that were written down for our instruction that we might understand who our God is and understand who we are, it is wise for us to take our time with these verses so that we understand them. And I think that the goal for us today is not merely to understand what these verses say, for that might merely be an academic exercise, but to understand what they mean for us today. It has been my contention throughout this book so far that really all of creation says important things to us about God's character. So we have been saying throughout chapters 1 and 2 that creation is really about the glory of God being on display. His beauty, we see beauty in creation. His wisdom and the great design that we see there. His grace, as I have been saying to you over the past many weeks, shows up in subtle, but I'm hoping increasingly clear ways. We see God shining on creation before there's ever a star. I submitted to you that I believe that was the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, shining His light down upon His creation and then giving it shape. And then God creates mankind in His image, the chief summation of all that God wanted to be. In fact, all of the environment, the atmosphere in which these image bearers will live, it's for their enjoyment. And then He makes them especially unique so that they might enjoy Him in that special, enjoyable environment. And last week, as we finished chapter 2, we saw that God did not leave this homo sapien, this man alone, but, but brought Him a helper, not a slave, not, not a servant, not someone that He could master or lord Himself over, but one that would be His perfect complement, one, one that He could love, one in whom He could invest grace much like God had done for him. And so the creation story speaks much about God's glory, and perhaps the chief attribute, the chief characteristic of God on display in those first couple of chapters is God's grace, His kindness. He just kept pouring it down on top of them. But now we come to chapter 3. And if you've been a Christian for any span of time, you're probably pretty familiar with this story. Traditionally, in Christian theology, we call this the fall. So today we are going to look at Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 13, which describes to us the fall of man and the rescue of God. Now, I want to say to you at the outset we're not really going to get into the rescue part until next week. That shows up for us in verses 14 and 15 and then going down forward into the rest of the chapter. We're going to cover in really clear ways today the dark stuff. And I think that that's probably appropriate for us in this season. So if you think about it, Next week will be Palm Sunday, and traditionally here, that's the Sunday that we really focus on the crucifixion on a yearly basis. 
Now, not that we don't talk about it other times because we talk about it all the time, but that's a Sunday where we tend to focus on the crucifixion itself. And, of course, the week following is Resurrection Sunday. So, if we're going to talk next week about the necessity and provision of the cross, and the week after that talk about the victory of Christ out of death, it's appropriate for us this week, and I think this is by God's providence, that we talk about why things like that were even necessary. Why was something like the murder of the Son of God necessary? And so, from time to time, it is wise for us, though admittedly difficult, to to come to a text like this and just rest under the weight of it. Now, at the end, we will hint at the good stuff that's coming, and we will lace some of those hopeful thoughts throughout. But mostly what I want to do today is I want us to feel the weight of what sin really is so that we can help understand, be helped to understand why we are like we are and why the world is like it is. So, the fall of man and the rescue of God. Let's read together Genesis chapter 3 verses 1 through 13. This is God's Word. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. May God bless the reading of his word. I have said to you in the first couple of chapters that the Hebrew people, the Israelites, desperately needed to understand who their God was. Moses, who wrote Genesis, wrote at a time after which, or during which, Israel had come out of slavery in Egypt. They had been oppressed. They had been shackled, both literally and metaphorically. They had been used and abused. But their covenant-keeping God, the self-existent I Am, had come through His servant Moses and brought the people out with a mighty and strong arm. Not Moses' arm, God's arm. So He brings them out through plagues. He crushes their enemies in the Red Sea, sends them across on dry land, brings them to Mount Sinai, gives them a covenant, and then sends them on their way to their promised land, to Canaan. 
Of course, as you probably know the story, they did not believe that they were strong enough to conquer the inhabitants of Canaan. And of course, on their own, they were not. So they cowered in fear, demonstrating unbelief, and God judged them for their unbelief. And then the first generation that had come out of Egypt had to wander around in failure in the wilderness for 40 years, so one generational span. Then the next generation would be given another chance to go into Canaan to the promised land. And as they were wandering, Moses, their leader, their prophet, the man of God, the servant of God, wrote, and then he preached, and he spoke to them about who their God was. And as they received bread from heaven, water from rocks, clothes that did not wear out, sandals that did not develop holes in them, as God protected them from all the things that would harm them and sustain them, Moses wrote so that they would understand why that kept happening and how they could keep trusting the God who kept it happening. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 were essential for their faith to call them to trust God who would sustain them. The God who had made all things, including them, would take care of them despite their failure, despite their unfaithfulness. But why is it that these Hebrew people didn't believe God? Why is it that despite all the things that they had seen Him do on their behalf in Egypt, coming out of Egypt, and after Egypt, how is it that those people who saw all those miraculous things still had sustained unbelief? Why were they like that? Why were there laws that had to govern manslaughter and thievery? Why did these people who had seen God do such amazing things, why did they struggle with pride? Why did they struggle with lust? Why did sons rise up against fathers? Why did marriages break apart? Why did leaders fail to lead well? Why? Just like Israel needed to know that the God who had made all things which is described in chapters 1 and 2, would continue to take care of them, they also needed to understand why they were like they were. And Genesis 3 explained it to them. And frankly, we are not so much different. Israel was sojourning, anticipating a land of rest. We ourselves continue to sojourn now, anticipating a time of future rest, and we need to know that there is a God who has made all things and sustains all things, and upon whom He has placed His image. We are His image bearers. We are to enjoy Him and to reflect His glory. But why are we prideful? Why is it so hard to trust Him? Why is it that we we so desperately seek after the place that He alone secures? Why is it that though He has called us to worship, and we know that He is the glorious one, we know that He alone is the one who can satisfy us, we know we owe to Him our allegiance, why is it so hard? You see, we're not so much different than Israel. 
And this text helps us to understand ourselves. The first thing that I want us to see today are the roots of the fall. And I think verses 1 through 6 make those things relatively plain to us. Just briefly, let's talk about this serpent in verse 1. Now, certainly this serpent is not called Satan here in this text, but traditionally in Christian theology and much of Jewish theology, that is the idea, that this was Satan himself, that he inhabited this serpent or used one of his emissaries to do that, but more likely the serpent himself was Satan and came to tempt Adam and Eve. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to Job chapter 1. I'm going to give you a little bit of evidence as to why we believe this is Satan. I don't think I probably have to argue for this with any great detail because you probably don't struggle with this, but I want to give you some idea of of who this person, this being, was. In verse 6 of Job 1, God is in His heavenly court, and the angelic beings have to come and give account for themselves. So, verse 6, Now there was a day... When the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And if you know the rest of the story, God then points out Job and says that there is none like him. And he's righteous. He worships God. And Satan answers in verse 9, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? He's basically saying, you keep blessing him and you protect him. No wonder he worships you. Let me me have a go at him. And God says, okay. But of course in verse 12 he says, "You you can't hurt his body. And Job comes and he basically wipes out Job's property and his family but he still doesn't curse God. We know that by the end of chapter 1. And Satan comes back. He again has been going to and fro on the earth, doing his evil deeds. And God says, look at Job, he still hasn't cursed me. And Satan answers in verse 4 of chapter 2, skin for skin, all that a man has, he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And God lets him do it. God lets him afflict Job's body. So, this being that is called Satan, and in the Hebrew that means opposer. He is the opposer of God. He is the one that is going to and fro around the earth seeking to destroy God's people. Peter says in chapter 5 of his first epistle that he is like a roaring lion seeking people that he can devour. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 that he is shooting fiery darts at God's people, and thus we must be on our guard. Jesus himself said that this serpent, this Satan, the devil, was a liar from the beginning and a murderer. John says in Revelation chapter 20 that he is a dragon and the ancient serpent. But Paul gives us hope by saying in his letter to the Roman church that soon Jesus will crush Satan under our feet. So we put all those thoughts together, and it's relatively clear from the rest of the Bible that this one showing up at the beginning of chapter 3 is the opposer of God. 
He is the slanderer against God's people. He is the one roaming to and fro, seeking to devour and destroy God's people. He was a murderer from the beginning. I want you to think of it this way. The one who shows up here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, is the great anti-God. Now, certainly he is anti-God. He hates all things that are like God. He hates God himself. But in many ways, he is the diametrical opposite of God. What has God shown himself to be in Genesis chapters 1 and 2? He's wise. He's creative. And he is effusive in pouring out his grace. What is Satan? Well, Satan's the anti-God. He is irrational, not wise. He is, he is decreative. If God has been creating all things well, remember we saw this several times in Genesis chapter 1, God made these things and saw that they were good. What does Satan come now and do? He, he brings bad into the equation. He's, he's decreating. And if God is the one who is full of love, full of effusive grace, what is Satan? If God pours out, Satan is like a black hole, sucking in, drawing attention to himself. If, if God gives life, Satan seeks to take life. Satan is the anti-God. And he comes here on the scene because he hates God. And in his mind, what better way to get at God than to get at his people? So that's what he does. So he comes as the irrational, decreative, selfish being, the anti-God to come destroy God's people and irrationally, in his mind, kind of destroy the whole experiment. We know here in verse 1 that He's definitely crafty, but we know that He's made. We know that, we know that He's not unequal with God. This is not a yin and yang kind of thing. It's not a dualism. That, that's very anti-biblical. There's, there's not equal powers of good and evil. This is a created being. You see that in Job chapters 1 and 2 because even Satan has to come give account to God. As I've already said to you in Revelation chapter 20, one day that dragon, that ancient serpent, will be crushed, as Paul says, under our feet. He is a created being, and yet he is very powerful. And so he comes to the woman in verse 1, and he says, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What's he doing? He immediately is calling into question what God has said. But I don't think this is necessarily like a courtroom scene. I think if you approach it like that, you're kind of missing the point. In other words, if you're, if you're just trying to parse words here, if you're trying to, to get at this from the standpoint of, okay, here's what God really said, and here's what Satan said, and they don't, those statements don't quite match up, I think that might be helpful. It might be instructive. But he's not really necessarily trying to question God's words so much as he's trying to question God's character. He is impugning the character of God. And specifically, I think, in verse 1, what he's really doing is he's questioning whether or not God is good. If you think about it, though we don't know much about the fall of Satan, there's a little bit of speculation from the major writing prophets as to when Satan fell and how he fell. We don't really know very much. 
But something had happened in his evil, twisted heart, which now shows up in the way that he tries to twist other people's hearts. Seemingly, he himself had questioned the goodness of the Almighty. So what does he come with? He comes with similar questions, and he proposes them and lets them kind of hang out there. And the woman responds, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, we don't know anything in chapter 2 about whether or not God prohibited them touching the tree. Some theologians believe that the first sin of mankind shows up in Genesis 3.3 because Eve adds to the Word of God. That's speculation. It might be accurate. I think it's probably reading a little bit too much into the text. I think what's probably going on here is just giving Eve the benefit of the doubt is that probably Adam had said to her, God doesn't want us anywhere near that tree. She may well not have been adding to the Word of God. So maybe she's doing well so far by verse 3. But the serpent's crafty, remember. And he already himself does not believe in the goodness of God, and so now he imputes the character of the goodness of God further. So he says, you will not surely die. So he's questioning the wisdom of God here. But again, the goodness of God is really in question because seemingly what Satan is saying is God's withholding something from you. He says this in verse 5 really pretty clearly. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So he's basically saying God is a killjoy. Happiness is out there for you to find. But there's, there's this God who shows up every once in a while and speaks with you. He's basically deceiving you. There's so much more that you could be. And I think the fall really happens now in verse 6. So the woman, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So the anti-God comes to them and questions the goodness of the God who had made them and who had sustained them. This is sort of a fruitless exercise, but it's interesting to consider how long have they been in the garden? I think we kind of get the idea that they had just been there like a day. Like, you know, God finished everything on the sixth day, rested on the seventh day, and, and, and then like, you know, Eve shows up and is Adam's wife, and they get a little bit of time to, to communicate. And, and then like by day 9, 10, 11, then Satan shows up and the whole thing falls apart quickly. And that's, that's possible. But what if they had been there a while? What if they had, had learned to commune with God and, and enjoyed that? What if they had had ample time to, to lie together under the trees or to, to get on top of a rise and, and look down upon God's creation? to gaze at the birds, to to enjoy the taste of the food that God had provided? What if they had mined some of the gold and bdellium and onyx stones that we saw back in chapter 2? What if they had enjoyed these riches? They, They, at least, even if it had been for a brief period of time, and especially if it had been for a long period of time, had seen the goodness of God on display. They enjoyed Him. They had no lack. God had seen to everything. But Satan comes along and he tempts them with a thing that they didn't have, which they subtly believed would make things 
better than they presently were. You see, in some ways, Satan appeals to their rationale. But I think perhaps equally so, if not even more, God appeals to their, I'm sorry, Satan appeals to their affections. So he he certainly appeals to their rationale. He starts parsing words, but I think he also equally, if not more so, appeals to their affections. Here's what I mean by that. He doesn't merely give logical arguments. He's not merely relating to the cognitive side of of their being. What he's really doing is basically saying, joy is to be found, pleasure is out there, satisfaction may be gained, but unless you do this, this one thing that the Almighty has said you cannot do, you'll never really have it. Joy, satisfaction, happiness, it will always be elusive for you. So the crafty serpent, the anti-God, comes and appeals to their rationale, but equally, if not more so, appeals to their affections, the, the seat of their affections, their hearts, the things that now in the progeny of Adam the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, that place that, that our idols come from. You see, our idols in some ways are affected by our rationale, but perhaps more so, and I don't think that's a stretch, they're affected by our affections, the things we desire, the things that we crave. Up to this point, no matter how long Adam and Eve had now been on this new planet, they had never craved anything And had it not met. If they craved food, there was ample food. If they craved a drink, there was plenty of clear, cold water. They craved nothing and had those cravings unmet. And yet now, Satan dangles something out in front of them and says, you should crave this, and it's easy to have. So Satan somehow, in the time prior to this, had himself questioned the goodness of God. And now he calls the people to question the goodness of God. Creation was designed to live under the sovereign, gracious care of God and to treasure Him above all else. And yet Satan sought to undo this, to upset the harmony of God's good design. He craved what was not His. He he wanted to be the chief one. He, He wanted to be the one that was admired. For in Satan's mind, if he could gain the affections and the allegiance of these newly created beings, he would supplant God. He would take God's place, and that would be ultimate joy for this created being that we call Satan. But he couldn't have it. Which is why we've already said that Satan himself is irrational. This mission could not succeed. And yet, pun intended, he was hell-bent on doing it. Satan acted irrationally, as he always has. Adam and Eve acted irrationally. That explains why we do too. 
for those of us who have been God's people for some period of time, if we've been Christians for some period of time, we have learned little by little, often by very difficult path, that there's really nothing that compares to Jesus. We've tried to find satisfaction in our jobs. We have, from time to time, elevated our spouse to the position of deity. We have worshiped them. We certainly do that with our children. We crave money. We crave affection. We lust. And it's interesting because a lot of those things are not necessarily bad, right? The spouse isn't bad. We saw that at the end of chapter 2. The spouse that God gave Adam was a gift. Children are wonderful gifts. Jobs, careers, the ability to purchase things, these are good things. But like Adam and Eve, we become irrational in our cravings. It's interesting here, if you think about Satan, you have to assume in some way had to have had some sort of special place in God's created order. That is to say, he had to have been some sort of strong angelic being, and we don't know much about him, but we could probably say that with some measure of certainty. He had the chance to to live near, to be near the Almighty, and to enjoy Him, yet He gave that up. It's irrational. That is to say, it's not wise, but it also runs counter to what is normal and what will really satisfy people. That is to say, as we live close to God, we will be, we will be filled with joy. As I've already said, those of us who have been Christians a long time, we've, we've tried just about everything, right? We've tried. One of the frustrating things about being sons and daughters of Adam is that we tend to keep trying those things. How does the pursuit of of place, ego, work out for us? That it continues to be a struggle. How does the pursuit of of lust, sexual satisfaction outside of marriage, how how does that satisfy us? A lot of us have tried it in different kinds of ways. How's that worked out for us? How is making our jobs rather than a means of worship, the goal itself? In other words, God made us to work, that's good, but when, when the job itself becomes the goal, how does that work out? Does that ever really satisfy? That, that's like a cup with no bottom that you keep pouring water into and it can't quite ever be filled. How does the pursuit of money or stuff or a host of other things which crowd into our affections. How has that worked out for us? And God in His mercy to those who are His people keeps putting up the roadblocks, keeps tripping us up, keeps chastening us, not because He's mean, not because He's a killjoy, but because He loves us. And all those paths, some of which inherently are not necessarily bad, but but pursued to their furthest extent become bad, they, they, can't, they can't really satisfy you, and yet we keep going after them. You see, Adam infected all of his offspring with lack of rationale, with irrationality, and with changed, mutated affections. 
Why was it, if you think about it, and this is an important question, why was it that God did not make this first couple unable to sin? Why didn't God just do that? Why didn't God just create these people with the inability to do anything wrong, to turn their backs on Him? He could have made it like a worm farm, right? You know, like your kids, if your kid's kind of a science nerd, I have a science nerd son, love him. You know, he loves things like this. So maybe one day we'll buy him a worm farm and you, you know, get a couple pieces of plywood and get some plexiglass or whatever and pour some dirt in it. And, and then you watch the worms build their little tunnels and so forth. And, and if you have a worm farm, you're in control of that worm farm. You're the Lord of the worm farm. And, and it's unlikely that those worms are ever going to have a coup d'etat, like knock the plywood over, get some, you know, arms and take over the home. It's just not going to happen. You will always have control over those worms. Why didn't God make us like that? This could have been like a giant terrarium where, where everybody does exactly what they're supposed to do. He could have created us as responders to impulses, to, to stimuli. We, we, we see something and we respond, and, and we are programmed to do it that way. He could have made Adam and Eve the kind of people that when temptation came their way, that they just didn't respond but he didn't. Because God shows up later, I think sometimes we read this text with the idea that God didn't know what was going on. Like, he's still napping, or he was like doing something else, and then he was totally surprised that they were hiding from him. Why didn't God like just show up? When the serpent came along, why didn't he come along and just crush it with his heel right then? Why are we still anticipating that? I said to you that we will, we will interlace grace into the midst of all this darkness. But I think against the backdrop of all this darkness, grace, grace is going to shine eventually in this text. How would we understand the complexity of God's character if there had never been sin? Now, this does not mean that God brought the sin about. This text doesn't answer where sin came from necessarily. It just explains why we are like we are. And certainly this text does not impugn God's character and say that He is sinful. The Bible is very clear on that, that God is not sinful and He doesn't tempt people with sin. Why did He make us this way, though? Why did He make us with the ability to sin? Well, I think, again, it's because He wants us to understand the complexity of His character. Because of darkness, there is light. Because of sin, there is righteousness. And now we can understand these characteristics of God. But I think perhaps even more fundamentally in this text, he wanted them to be genuine worshipers. He didn't want them just responding to stimuli. He wanted them to choose to worship him. So God made them with free will, at least the first couple he did. Ever since then, we've been into the bondage of a fallen will. But the first couple had the ability to choose God, to worship Him. He didn't want them to be slaves. He didn't want them to be, to be servants who just responded to whatever their master said. Recently, watched 12 Years a Slave, the story of Solomon Northrup. I don't know if any of you saw this. It's a tough movie, and be careful if you do go watch it. There are some things that you have to think about as you do watch it, but I think it's a worthwhile uh, watch, especially for adults. 
Um, but as you watch this movie, this, this northern black man is captured and brought down into southern slavery for 12 years, and he's ripped away from his family. And here's this educated man who is now put on a plantation and beaten into submission. And, and you watch these things, and, and a whole host of emotions well up in my mind as I watch these things. And it's one of the only movies I've ever wept partially through. Uh, it, it just brings out anger and frustration and despair as you watch what's going on in the screen in front of you. God didn't want us to be like that. We're just beaten into submission and we just do whatever our slave master says. Now, I'm well aware, for those of you who are really smart and know a little bit of Greek, I'm well aware that in the New Testament that we are called bond servants or slaves. But that's not what we're talking about here. So if you're clever and you're going to come talk to me afterward about how we are God's slaves, I know, okay? We are God's slaves. But in that context, when we're called the bond servants of God, that's a happy thing. That's not what I'm talking about. God didn't want us to be slaves who just respond to stimuli, who are beaten to submission. God wanted us to be rational, affectional worshipers, and then we can enjoy Him. You I mean, think about that. If we're only responding to stimuli, can you really enjoy anything? That worm might be safe in his worm farm, but he's not enjoying anything. He's doing what he's supposed to be doing. But he's not really enjoying it or finding any sense of satisfaction or fulfillment. No, God made us to be feelers. God made us to be desirers. God made us to desire Him, to feel after Him, to to worship Him, to want Him, to be satisfied in Him. And of course, as I've already said, as the hint of grace is in even our sermon for today, Because of the nastiness of sin, His grace will shine so brightly. We'll talk more about that next week. Any attempt to explain why God came after Eve and not Adam would just be an exercise in futility. I don't know. This this doesn't make Eve less than Adam. She, She wasn't more susceptible, I don't think. Again, just an exercise in futility. I think, in many ways, the real onus is on Adam here. And I think that shows up in some verses that we'll talk about in just a moment. But I will say this. In one way or another, Adam failed here. Perhaps he failed to teach. I think he definitely failed to lead. And he certainly failed to protect. Now, in the verses that we'll talk about in just a moment, he blame shifts. But the responsibility was definitely on him. And I think there's an implication for us here as husbands, as dads, those of us who have those privileges, that we're going to answer for the way that the women in our lives respond to the world around them. Now, of course, the women in our lives are responsible for making their own choices. But we are a reflection of the Almighty and the way that we lead our homes. So dads, husbands... You're always leading in one way or another. Whether they think you are or not, you're always leading. You might be leading poorly or you might be leading well. And frankly, we tend to vacillate between the two, don't we? It's interesting here that immediately he's on the scene. I think we've always had the idea that he's off somewhere like vine dressing. Satan has this crafty discussion with her and 
he comes in, Adam does, like right at the moment she's going to eat the piece of fruit. And maybe that's how it happened. But throughout this section, Satan's been speaking to them in the plural. You both will do this. Which may indicate that Adam was there watching. We know he was, of course, by verse 6 because he took some. Maybe he was there the whole time. Even though Eve was the first one to eat, Adam was the responsible one, and he failed miserably. Before we step away from these verses and move on to the next verses, which we will spend a little bit less time on today, I want to draw out a couple implications for us today. Do you ever find yourself being the kind of person that delights in the downfall of another person? Are you the kind of person that delights in another person's misery? Do you like it when another person is not as good as you? In subtle ways, do you even seek at times to hurt people or to trip them up? You see, Satan is the great anti-God, certainly irrational, certainly decreative, but perhaps the chief thing that shows up in this section is he's just a murderer. If God gives life, Satan seeks to take it. Now, most of us would never commit homicide, mostly because we don't want to go to prison. I mean, it's bad to murder, but most of us just don't want to go to the clink. So we would never do that. But we find other subtle ways to do this. And Jesus amplified what murder was when he said that if you hate your brother in your heart, you're, you're no better than a murderer. Do you delight when your enemies, those who have hurt you, are hurt? Do you delight when those in whom you perceive yourself to be in competition with don't quite make it as far as you make it? I was telling Whitney the other day, and I really struggle with that. I really struggle whenever I hear of a friend of mine that is also a church planter and their church is better in category X, Y, or Z. I struggle with that. I struggle sometimes whenever I hear about people succeeding in ways that I haven't succeeded. I take wretched delight in hearing about other people failing in ways that I'm not failing in, especially ways that I'm no longer failing in that I once failed in because now I'm better than them. So I I said this to Whitney, and she said, oh, you are evil. And I am, and that stuff scares me. When I see myself being jealous of people's successes, when I find myself being gleefully happy when another person fails, you know what that says about me? That's anti-God. This God who has effusively poured His grace out upon humanity, that's not what I'm acting like. That's not what I'm feeling. Now, I'm clever enough to not express it typically. Much like I don't want to murder so I don't go to the slammer, I don't articulate the evil in my heart because I don't want you to know it. But that scares me. There's one thing I want you to think about as you walk away from this text today is, do those things well up in your heart? Well, that's not like the Father who made you. That's like the Father that you pattern when you lie and you murder. It's Satan. And that's horrid. I think likewise, one more implication before we step away. Fundamentally, what Satan does here is he questions the goodness of God. And I think in many ways, that's at the root of all of our sin. So we struggle with pride and we struggle with unbelief. But why do we struggle with pride and unbelief? 
Because we're not sure God's good. Because what do we really want to be? We want to be happy. You want to be happy. We are not that complex. We want to be happy. So why do we go after idols? Why do we choose not to worship God and choose other things instead? Why do we, why do we elevate lesser things to the place of the supreme thing? Because we question God's goodness. So next time you find yourself struggling with unbelief, next time you struggle with pride, ask yourself this question. What is it that I don't understand or believe about the goodness of God? Remember, that's, that's where Satan got to them. That's where they were susceptible. And that's where we are susceptible today. The roots of the fall. Pride. It's unbelief. But fundamentally, it's questioning the goodness of God that somehow He's not going to let you be happy. And that's hard for us. We could say so much more, but I won't. In fact, I think for sake of time and not overwhelming you, I'm going to end there today because that's a lot to drink in. Um, there's, there, there's so much in this text that I, I want you to just to noodle on, and, and I want you to really just get down in your brains and in your hearts. So I want to end there today so that you have time to do that. I want you to take this stuff home this week, and I want, I want to let it just marinate down in your hearts and your heads a little bit. And I also want to do justice to the verses that are upcoming. As, as you do that this week, as you think about the roots of the fall and why Adam and Eve did what they did and why you are like you are, read ahead down to verse 13 again and look at the effects. Look what happened. They covered themselves and they hid. If it's true that they were susceptible at the point of whether or not they believed God's goodness and then they fell through pride and unbelief, what happened to them? Why did they cover up and why did they hide? Those are some good questions I want you to think about in the week ahead as we prepare for Palm Sunday and we'll talk about the beauty of Christ which shows up in the verses ahead of us. So this is dark. I know it is. I want to end on this note. We will take next week verse 7 and then continue on. We'll go a little further than I had planned even to go today. And we will get down to the section where the promise of Christ is, is brought to the fore. In verse 15 specifically, God shows up, curses the serpent, and says, I'm going to send a Redeemer. And as we come to Palm Sunday next week, we'll talk about that Redeemer who shows up. So I, I want you to rest under the weight of this, but I want, I want you to remember that there is definitely hope in Jesus who rescues us from pride and unbelief. And he answers that subtle question, is God really good? And the provision of Jesus shouts, yes, he's good.